Join me as we welcome the strongest field in golf back to South Carolina and the ocean course at Kiowa Island Golf Resort. time margin of victory in PGA Championship history. Can it be? Yes! The new ruler of the game of golf is Rory McIlroy. Yeah, it was a great round of golf. I'm speechless. That truly was a great day in South Carolina. I was there in 2012 and could not have been more proud to see our state shine on the world stage. All right, folks. Welcome back to another episode of Triple G, Ginger's Gridironing Golf Podcast. Thanks to the Greek, the old boy, for coming on uh, Instagram Live this week, this past week, doing a live schedule release show, talking all things schedule. So if you're uh, you're looking to catch up on that, that's posted up on our Instagram um, posts and feed, so you can check it at Triple G there. But on to the big news, and that is another all-in episode here, and it's our PGA Championship preview episode. Huge week on the PGA Tour and in golf. The second major has arrived, and it is coming to you live from Kiowa Island, South Carolina. We've got a guest today on Mr. Bob Herrig from ESPN, who's going to be joining us live from the PGA Championship at Keough Island Ocean Golf Course. And after break, we'll get into a little uh, NFC and AFC South draft review, division review. So we're going we're gonna to break it down. But let's dive in now to uh, the PGA Championship and our preview of that. 103rd edition of the PGA uh, the Championship, the strongest field of the season, um, I believe, 99 or well what should have been 100 out of the top 100 golfers other than Matt with Wolf uh, withdrawn this week uh, it would have been uh, a perfect hundred for a hundred but um, what a golf course what a facility Kiowa Island has five golf courses on it and this week's championship golf course the ocean course will be the longest in major championship history at playing at over 7,800 yards, the longest since uh, Aaron Hills, which I believe was 76 or 7,700 yards, a 79.1 rating, a 155 slope. This is the uh, the fourth best public golf course in the United States, 25th out of the top 100 in, in um, the U.S., which is absolutely amazing for a public facility. Um Great facility, great event, great field. There's nothing better. Uh, this this golf course held the War by the Shore in 1991, the Ryder Cup. It is the only golf course that was slated to host a Ryder Cup without the golf course even hadn't even been built yet, hadn't even been finished, been built yet. It is another Pete Dye masterpiece. Um, hosted some great events: 2012 uh, PGA, 2007 PGA, 97 World Cup. So absolutely phenomenal, and uh, we're going to have Dutch on uh, after we, we talk with Bob here shortly 
to talk about the, more about the golf course, but to uh, to get a feel for uh, what's happening here at Kiowa as we lead up on this Monday towards the start of this PGA Championship. Let's uh, shift it over to um, Bob Herrick live from the PGA. All right, listeners, let's give a special welcome live from Kiowa Island for the PGA Championship 103rd edition. We've got active member of the Golfers Writers Association of America, been covering the game for over 30 years, senior golf writer for ESPN.com, TV analysis, Mr. Bob Herrick. Bob, uh, are you there? I certainly am. Thank you. Amazing. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, you must be excited. Bob, give, give our listeners uh, a feel. Is this a, is this a typical week for you in terms of um, being live on site on the tour, or is this kind of a special week in terms of a major championship where you get to, uh, you know, get to go and, and cover live right from the golf course? Uh, well, I go to a lot of tournaments that are not majors, but the majors are a little bit more amped up. Uh, it's a longer week. I get here earlier. There's more to do. Uh, it's just like for the players, it's a little bit more intense. So, uh, on our end, there's, there's more work to do. There's more, uh, there's more interest. I think there's a desire to produce more content. Uh, the PJ championship is on ESPN, the first two rounds and the early coverage on the weekend. There's a lot of it on ESPN plus. So like, it's a big thing for the company as well. And, yeah. uh, so it's treated pretty seriously. Yeah, across all 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 of the the network, I believe I read 229 live hours um, of of coverage there. So, um, a lot of content to be putting out there for sure, no doubt. Yeah, you know, it's if between ESPN and ESPN Plus, it's going to be 12 hours straight on Thursday and Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Eastern, all the way to 7 p.m. And then there's all kinds of other stuff like featured holes and featured groups um interviews that's on a lot of that's on espn plus so there's there's a lot to uh there's a lot to consume for the golf fans and especially after the masters where it's limited um you know the the amount of viewing is limited this becomes uh you know a huge amount and uh so if you want if you're if you're interested in all it's there it's all there well our listeners will uh We'll eat it up for sure. What uh, what does this type of week look uh, look like for you, Bob? Are, are you kind of all over the place, or are you you know in the media tent? Are you are you trying to you know get in contact with as many players and connections as you possibly can? Um, are you on the golf course? Uh, give our listeners a feel for what it will look like for you. It's basically all of the above. Um, I'm writing inside. I'm monitoring a lot of it inside. I go watch you know, players I'm interested in writing about or following uh, certainly want to get a sense of what the golf course is playing like and what it looks like. Um, it's, it's not one that I know as well as others I go to. So there's a little bit more to um, digest for me. Uh, and then as far as doing interviews, you know, they, they make the, the guys available that we request. We're still sort of in a little bit of a um, holding pattern due to COVID you know, we're not, we're not, we don't have as much freedom to just approach players like we normally would. Um, it's getting better, uh, but understandably for now, they're being cautious. And so there's certain areas that we have to do that in. There's, we can't go in the locker room. Normally, I might be able to do that. 
Um, but it's all good. You know, I need somebody, we can request them and they typically bring them. So yeah, it's all over. I mean, it's, it, I never really quite know when the day begins, how, how it's going to unfold. Uh, especially those first so much going on and they're playing all day. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, you know what? It keeps it, keeps it fresh, keeps it light for you. And, and like you said, it's different each day, which is fun. What's uh give our listeners a feel. What's the, uh, what's the feel around the golf course right now as, as you arrived yesterday and you're here on, uh, as we record on Monday, the 17th here, you know, T minus three days before the event, what's the feel around the golf course? What's the feel around, um, the area, the surrounding area? Well, the area is, is pumped. Um, you know, this is, uh, to get a major championship in your vicinity is, is a rare thing. And so they're, they're excited about it and they're feeling good about the idea of, you know, having a decent number of spectators compared to what we've seen here over the last year. They say 10,000 a day. I have a feeling it's going to be a lot more than that. I think with the restrictions being loosened, I think they're going to let more people in. Uh, you know, the mask mandates are gone now on the course for spectators. That helps immensely. Um, you know, to watch a golf tournament outdoors with a mask on when it's 85 degrees isn't exactly comfortable. So that's a good thing. Um, and the weather looks like it's going to be great. I mean, there's not a lot of rain in the forecast. It's not going to be terribly hot. And uh, I think it's, it's, and it's also not going to be very windy, which might make the course play a little bit easier than we would like. But uh, I have a feeling the course is going to stand up just fine. It's a, uh, you know, there's just no place to miss out there. It's very, very difficult course. No bailout, a lot of sand, a lot of waste areas, plenty of water. It's, um, you know, it's, there's a reason that they've had a Ryder Cup here and now a second major. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, and the only course in, in history that had a, a Ryder Cup announced uh, before the golf course was even <laughs> fully fully built, yep. right, in 91. That's, so. that's right. That's right. That was controversial for sure. How do you how do you think the PGA, um, you know, and and Superintendent Stone are going to uh, are going to set this golf course up? Is it you know have you had the opportunity to get out there and take a look? Is it is it firm and fiery, or are, are they just kind of letting the week play out and see what the weather does here before they really get a good feel come Thursday morning as to how they want to, you know, finalize their their course setup? They wanted to be firm and fiery. That that's that's always the goal in a major. Firm and fast, you know, you, you want, you want the ball running because, because that's where skill separates. Um, if the ball stopping shots that are mishit, um, you know, are, are, are more apt to, 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 to avoid trouble yeah. when, when it's firm and fast, the, 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 the top players, the ones who are playing the best separate themselves because you've got to control the ball more. You know, if, they, if those greens are rock hard, you, you can't be hitting shots in that aren't struck solid because they're not going to stay on the green. Same with the fairways. If you're hitting, if you're hitting it offline and it's soft, the ball's going to stay. If it's running hard, it's going to run through into the rough. So that's kind of a, you know, a starting point that they would love to have. Now the question is, is do they, you know, do, can, how do they manage it? Because you can't not put water down. You've got to have some water on the greens and temperatures like this uh, on a seaside venue. Uh, but, but, but by the same token, 
to get it firm and fast, you don't want it to get too wet. So uh, it's, uh, you know, that's, that's the, that's the game that they play. That's sort of the, how they have to, um, you know, sort of plot their way and figure out that's what agronomists do. You know, that's what golf course superintendents are trained to do, figure out the best way to bring the course to the edge without taking it over, but also don't let it get too firm and fast so that it's not playable or not fair. It's not, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very uh, thin line. And, uh, you know, seeing that there's not a lot of rain in the forecast, you know, I think helps because they can kind of try to monitor it each day. You know, I'm sure after, after Tuesday, they're going to try to assess and they'll look at those greens. Are they getting too firm? Are they getting baked out? Maybe we might need to put a little water down just to take the edge off. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then go from there. Yeah. And, and when it's, when it's not mother nature, uh, putting the water down it, you know, when, when you can put it down, you've got a little bit more control of that too. Right. Yeah. No question. You know, they yeah. can just kind of lightly sprinkle and just get a little bit of moisture in there, uh, which helps keep the grass healthy, but it also doesn't necessarily soak it so that it's so, you know, that it's so soft as to impact the outcome. Yeah. Uh, obviously if you get a deluge of rain, there's nothing they can do about that. Yeah, no, no doubt. You, you mentioned, you know, uh, around the greens and, and the fairways. What's what's the strength or the number one strength that you feel uh, for the player that's going to win this tournament? You know, we saw in 2012 with Rory, you know, everybody talks about, you know, his driving of the golf ball. Is that still going to be at a premium here this week at Kiowa? Or do you feel um, something else may pop up in terms of, you know, irons into the greens or shot shape or putting? Um, what do you feel is going to be that number one strength that when we walk away on Sunday afternoon with the winner, we're going to say they won this golf tournament because? Iron play. I think it's second shots. Um, you know, guys are going to hit, hit, hit and miss fairways, but how do they recover when they do? Do they avoid the bunkers or actually the waste areas, as they call them here? There, there really aren't bunkers. These are all playing, being played as – as uh, waste areas, so they're, they're you know you can ground your club, uh, and uh, there but there's so much of it that it's um, you know it's 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 a true hazard. There's a lot of it out there. Guys have to have to steer their ball around, and then so you know I think having a good iron game, being hitting it solid, you, if the wind does come up, the guys who hit it the most solid are going to have the best chance. Uh, right now, it doesn't look like a lot of wind. You know, maybe 10 miles an hour. Yep. It'd be nice to see it blow 30 one day, but, um, you know, just to, just to, you know, see how they handle it. But I don't know that we're going to get that. It doesn't look like the forecast calls for a lot of wind, which, um, you know, I think is a little unfortunate. I think we'd like to see them, you know, really have to navigate that. That's, that's part of the reason for being on the, on the ocean like this. And, and these holes are built up so that the wind is a factor. So if it blows any, you know, it's still going to be an in, it's still going to have an impact. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. You know, we all know the the finish of the golf course and and in terms of, you know, 16, 17, 18 and those inward holes. Is there any parts of the golf course that that you've seen or that, or you feel Bob that that um, can really play a factor? You know, is it is it, you know, a player being able to to navigate and make some make some hay on holes 6 through 10 or you know, navigate a tough stretch on the, the outward nine on two through four. What is there, is there any parts of the golf course that you feel 
could really play a factor here? Or do you feel that, you know, come Sunday, it's going to be, you know, 13 through 18, and that's going to decide who our winner is? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think those are the holes that that we're going to focus on because they're at the end. Um, and so much can happen. I mean, 17 is an unbelievable par three. Um, it's really tough. There's nowhere to miss that green, really. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of tough holes on the outward nine as well. And, you know, you could let it get away from you there if you're not careful. Um, it's, 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 not like there's, it's not like there's much let up out there. You know, there's not too many places to bail out. I mean, that's the one thing that, that, uh, that strikes me is maybe it's my own feebleness as a golfer, but I always look for, well, where, <laughs> where can you miss it? You know, where, where can you hit it when, if you're not going to go for the green, or if you're not going to hit the perfect drive, well, where can I hit it and get away with it? You know, a lot of, a lot of courses offer you that option. Um, it doesn't seem like there's that many options here. It doesn't seem like you can do that much. So, um, good luck to these guys, man. It's going to be tough. I love it. I love the, love that feel for sure. Bob, you know, we've, we've heard Brooks talk about before, you know, Hey, I've only got to beat 15 or 18 guys or 20 guys in, in, in a major, because I know my skills going to beat, you know, another 50 and my mind going to beat the other 25 or 30 or, or our number numbers runs, runs down there. What do you feel about this week? Do you feel this is one of those majors that's fully open to, you know, 80, 90 guys to go ahead and win this thing? Or are we kind of in that traditional feel, feel when we look at this field that, you know, it's truly only going to be that 15 to 18 type of number that are going to be able to take the, uh, the Wanamaker trophy home on Sunday. The PGA is always the one with the most. Um, it has no amateurs. It has no qualifiers. Obviously, the Masters has a lot of past champions. It has yeah. a smaller field. Um, the PGA has 20 club pros who don't have much of a chance. But, okay, so that leaves you 136 other guys who are pro golfers, most of whom have gotten in through – uh, there's 99 of the top 100 in the world who are entered. Matthew Wolf, who withdrew due to the injury, uh, is the only one in the top 100 not here. And then you've got you know a sprinkling of guys beyond that. So the, the bottom line is it's a deeper field. It's the deepest field of the four majors. The the U.S. Open and the 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 Open have qualifiers. Uh, you know, people randomly make it into the field through qualifying, which is a, which is a great aspect of those tournaments, but it, it, it weakens the field a little bit in yeah. terms of overall strength. There are not, not as many guys who are really up there. So, but, but Kepka has got a great attitude about that. It's really a good way to look at it. I mean, there are some guys who just aren't going to be playing well. There's guys who aren't going to handle major championship that well. And, you know, if you, if you, it's down to, you know, I've got 30 guys to beat. Um, maybe that helps you mentally. Uh, the thing is, though, is one of those 30 guys could be somebody you've never heard of or thought of. Every now and then a guy comes out of nowhere to do really well in these things. You know, uh, John Daly 30 years ago, for example. Uh, Keegan Bradley 10 years ago had never played in a major when he, yep. won, when he won the PGA. That's really rare that you win a major your first try. Um, Sean McKeel in 2003, 
his only tour win was the PGA Championship that year. So, uh, you know, it happens. There's, there's, you know, these guys are good players. They, they come up and uh, 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 and 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 find find form for four days. So I'm not sure you can narrow it down to a really small number like that. Well, that's a good good breakdown of the field and a good you know good thought on it for sure. Bob, um, in, in closing, you know we look at the the PGA in, in entirety. Um, hundred. This is a hundred and third PGA Championship here. hundred and two that that we've contested. Is there a way to explain the fact that that America's won? You know, us being from from Canada up here uh, north of the border in Toronto. Mm. Is there a way to explain how, you know, eighty four out of those hundred and two winners have come from America? Is there is is it is it passion and they they want to win that that championship, um, i.e. just like the U.S. Open, or is it the the type of golf courses, or do you think it's just the way that that that's worked out that you know eighty four of those one hundred and two winners have come. Um, from in, inside the borders of the United States? I, I really think it boils down to the fact that for many, many years, it was about access. Um, the field was going to be comprised of mostly Americans for a very, very long time. I mean, when you're talking about a tournament that's played in the U.S. every year, it was going to be harder for players around the world to get here. And it's only in recent times, really, where Asian players have had have had more access. Certainly, European players had access back in the day. In fact, Jim Barnes, who won the first two PGAs, was from England. You yeah. know, and there was a lot. Of, there was a big a Scottish and English influence in the game in the early part. They dominated. But as the years went on, I mean, this tournament, you know, it it, it was it was sort of geared towards Americans getting in. You know, it's very heavily PGA Tour oriented. Um, there weren't a lot of exemptions for, and even to this day, there aren't, there aren't, they don't exempt anybody off the European tour. Now, any of the top players from the European tour are going to be highly ranked enough that they're going to be able to get in, get in. Yep. Um, but that didn't always used to be there, did, there. Before there was a world ranking, there wasn't that, that avenue to get in the tournament. So I just think that's a numbers thing. You, you could say that about all the majors, really same with the masters and, you know, they didn't have a lot of international winners for a long time. Uh, you know, it was it was a less worldly tournament. That's why the Open is, you know, that that is kind of the world's tournament. Uh, it, there, there's access from all over. Yeah. And so I just think it's, it's you know, in 100 years, I think those numbers will have evened out a little bit more. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. A couple more questions before we let you go here, Bob. Um, who do you like this week? Who, who do you, who's on your radar um, where you feel, you know what, they're playing well, the, it suits the golf course. Cause we, you know, you look at the golf course and I look at that outward nine, you can see why Rory did so well there because it is a lot of right to left shots. And I know he's working on the fade recently, but um, it is a lot of right to left shots out on that, out on that front nine as you, as you go outward and then turn back to the clubhouse. But um, who do you like? Who's on your radar? I picked Xander Shoffley, which means everybody should probably go and pick somebody else if they're gam- <laughs> if they're gambling. My 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 uh, track record is pretty poor, but um, in fact, if I if I uh, if I were really any good at that, I'd probably have moved to Vegas by now. But but I just look at it like, look, he's he's been really good in majors. 
He's not yeah. won any, and he's not won a lot recently either, any events. But look, he was right there again at the Masters. I believe he's got seven top tens in majors already in just three years. Uh, it's a pretty good record. It means he plays hard golf course as well. He's a really good ball striker. I think that helps in a major, certainly. If the wind picks up, he's more apt to be able to deal with it. Um, you know, except for that 16th hole on Sunday at Augusta, you know, he might have been he might have been the winner. He was just right there to put the pressure on Hideki uh, when he came up short, and he and he got he got bit by the wind there. So, you know, he, he made a miscalculation him and his caddy. Uh, but uh, I so I, I sort of like him. I like the ball strikers, uh, Justin Thomas. I don't necessarily think it's a putting. Uh, Rory obviously fits that. Uh, when he's playing well, Dustin Johnson. Uh, but as you know, we were talking about earlier, there's guys 80th in the world who could emerge and do really well. You'll see a bunch of names up there you don't recognize, I think, throughout the week. I just, it just, the, the, the tournament lends itself to that type of player emerging. Perfect. Well, uh, last question, and probably one of the most important ones before we let you go here, Bob. How's your golf game? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, nobody wants to talk about my golf game. My my golf game is uh, what do I what do I say? I've got a great short game off the tee. Oh, I um, love it. <laughs> yeah, it's um. Hey, look, I I work at it too. I try. I I've actually hadn't played a whole lot lately, but you know we've been. Pre- I live in Florida, so we've been pretty lucky. Been able to play a lot, and and uh, you know I I. Uh, I still try try to work at it, try to figure things out, try to learn things, um, get frustrated just like everybody else. But uh, yeah, it's not too much to to uh, to write home about. That's for sure. Uh, that's all all good. Well, Bob, I, want, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Uh, don't work too hard this week. Try to enjoy uh, a little bit of the golf. Get out on that golf course and see uh, see something special because it's a like you said, it's an, an amazing venue. Not a venue we get to see all the time, and uh, I hope you really enjoy it down there live from the PGA. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having Well, we got Dutch here now uh, joining in. He was listening over the interview. Dutch, uh, what do you think about what Bob had to say? Uh, listen, Ginger, thanks very much. Uh, and, you know, first off, I just want to say a, a huge congrats. I think that's uh, amazing. You know what? We, we worked hard. And you've been doing an extensive job on on landing some guys and, and finally getting a big fish there with a nice senior writer uh, with Bob and, and kudos to you for, for getting somebody on live from an event and for all of us golfers, you know, what, what better way than a, than a major. So um, yeah, I, I thought the interview was great. He, he, he shed some light onto the golf course and, and you know, what his day in the life of uh, how things um, go Monday through Sunday and you know, that he's really touching on all the points. He did touch a little bit on COVID and, and a little bit of the restrictions Um I do like how he explained a little bit more of the field. I mean, everybody knows that this field is, is the, the, the deepest field. Uh, you know what? He talked about the opens uh, as far as, you know, just some misfits that can get in. But this is really, truly all professional field. 99 out of 100. I was shocked to hear that. I didn't look at that stat. Only Matthew Wolf, as he said, was out. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great job in the interview. And uh, he had some great insights. So, uh, so well done. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words there. And let's, uh, let's dive into the golf course here, Dutch. Um, 
I know me and you had the opportunity to uh, to check out the uh, the twenty minute uh, aerial drone footage uh, from last night, and it, it does give you a little bit of a feel for it. it. Doesn't give you a feel for the wind and the conditions and and all those types of things. But you know, one thing I wanted to, to talk about, and I know the the big sexy thing on all the coverage this week's most likely going to be you know holes thirteen through eighteen. But first off, two two points a real cool golf course that you don't really see over here in North America. And the fact that you look at the front and the first four holes on the front nine go directly out, then five turns turn uh, kind of goes towards the ocean and then six, seven, eight, nine comes straight back. And then you get the exact same thing on the back nine, you know, 10 through 12 uh, playing straight out 13 kind of makes the little turn. And then you've got 14 to 18 straight back to the clubhouse. So it's almost like you've got two little mini nine hole links courses um, that are, you know, both going in opposite directions. So I thought the, the layout itself itself is absolutely fantastic. And I think there's two, two little spots here. Both of them come on the front nine. Holes two through four can really catch you and really blow guys out of the water early on in this golf tournament. And six through ten, I think guys can make a little bit of hay there, make a few birdies, get themselves either back into it, into contention, or make a little bit of a run. I couldn't agree more beauty right i mean you look at you look at some of the great uh, events that it's hosted including the last time that they had a big event was in 2012 with uh, with rory when he dusted the field and you and i both know that that's not going to happen this year as well what i like about the golf courses and bob actually touched on it too is that there's not many places to miss on here and it, you know yeah it's flat but it, it, there's going to be some tight spots. Uh, I don't, you know, you never know what they do with the rough. It's not a U.S. Open, so I, I can't see it being too strong. And these guys, you know, hit it a country mile. But the thing that blew me away was, funny enough, we talked about this last week about distance and putting and that. Well, 78, almost 7,900 yards this week. I, like yep. It's going to be the longest golf course that they've played, I believe, ever on tour. And Yep. So, you know, you'll see later in my picks here who I've got with it. I mean, I, you have to have a couple of these bombers in there. Um, the wind isn't going to be a factor. He touched on the weather as well, which we know already. We did our research. There's not going to be anything crazy on there. It might be a little bit windy. And, and you know, sea, sea courses or oceanside courses, the wind is always a little bit stronger. But um, it, whoever's playing, uh, somebody's going to have to be dialed right in in order to, to to blow the field away like Rory did back in 2012. But I just don't see it happen. I think it's a wide open. Uh, you can say there's favorites for sure, but you know anybody could uh, anybody could win this one this year. I believe. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you when you when I first thought of Kiowa, and I'm thinking of the, the the golf course and the field, and and you start to think about those European players, and then. And then I dive into it uh, in, in my research over the last week. And I, I see that point about, you know, the Americans and the domination in the field. And, and I do agree with Bob in the fact that, you know, the event didn't really open up until, you know, the mid seventies type per se. Um, but we're, there's still only 10 countries that have won this event. And I look at those, those UK type of countries Dutch, you want to know the last time that an Englishman won the, the PGA championship? Probably the very first year. You got it. 19, oh, really? 19, 19, 19, 102 wow. years ago. And that was exactly who Bob talked about. And that was Jimmy Barnes won it in 1916 in the first year. And then 1919 in the last year, I found, I was absolutely shocked to find that out. Um, crazy. I just, I, I, I think it's going to be an American as much as, as much as Bob didn't agree with me. 
I think I don't see anybody, I don't see any um, international country winning this event. I think it's going to stay right home in America. Yeah, you, you very well could be right. And, and, and our, I shouldn't say our, cause we're Canadian, but the, the American contingent, you know, is strong um, and poised to probably take down this event. Obviously, you know, my two as, as apparently we're getting four, which is great. We're getting four picks this week. You know, two of my big locks of the week are definitely Americans. And then obviously, you know, I dug deep on a, on a long shot and a kind of a, a mid range guy as well. So, you're right. It's probably going to come to come down to that. It, it was crazy to see, but it, it's a shame that they don't play this golf course a, a little more often because it is really, really cool. And, and I love the fact that there's going to be a ton of coverage. And since we're sure as heck not going to be open uh, again this week, uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, TV watching for me for sure. Um, hopefully by after the long weekend, uh, golf courses in Ontario will be op- up and open. But in the meantime, uh, let's, let's enjoy this. It's going to be a uh, fun golf's in a great state. And I keep loving every, every minute of it. Yeah, it's it's great. Couple couple kind of key points before we get to our picks here, Dutch. Yeah, um, read an article from from Superintendent Jeff Stone, who's worked hand in hand with uh, with the PGA. A real interesting quote that that I took from the article that I read in the fact that they asked him about the golf course setup, and he and he and they alluded to some of the the really wide fairways that they have out here, and he he practically admitted the fact about with these bombers that there's not too much that they're going to do setup wise. They're not going to try to narrow in at the 310 marker, 320 marker, 330 marker. They're kind of going to let the golf course speak speak for itself and they feel that the golf course is going to be tough enough um, by itself to handle that instead of having to, you know, narrow these fairways in at 310, 320, 330 yards some of the distances that these guys are hitting, which I found surprising and I think possibly might backfire especially if there's no wind out there. Well, and that's just like we said, how good these guys are playing um, and how, how it's been the last year or so. And look at what they did just this last week. And, and you know, I think the cut was four or five under. They were just destroying it. I mean, these guys are just so good. But he's, he's probably right. I mean, he, he's if anybody knows the golf course, he knows it quite well. And, and being that long of a golf course, you're now going back to that fact where instead of these guys hitting driver – wedges in all day long they're going to be hitting some fives and six irons in there and you know if the greens do get hard about as in every major you know what he who can control the ball the best is going to have the best opportunity to win and um i see you know similar to where rory's score was last year i I see like 10 to 15 um but i see a bunch of guys in there in the hunt like there'll be a bunch of guys at like 9 10 11 i think and um I just don't, I mean, it, it's a PGA championship. It's not a U.S. Open. It, they're not going to, they don't want minus one to win. Or do I think it's going to happen? There's just too many guys out there playing too good of golf. And um, so it'll be a, definitely a challenge, but I, I do think that a, a bomber is going to win this week. And a shout out to uh, three specific, there's 20 PGA professionals in the field, three specific that popped off the page to me. Number one, 52 years old, his fifth time qualifying for this event through the uh, through the PGA qualifying. Um, Omar Uresti, a name that most people will recognize, a yeah. former PGA Tour pro. Um, a couple other names that have, have qualified eight times through their event, their PGA event Dutch, and that's Danny Ballin um, from Meadows Country Club in uh, Lake Success, New York. And you want to talk about success. Success is qualifying for the PGA Championship eight times through uh, the PGA professional championship down there in, in the States and Rob Labris from Glen Arbor golf club. 
from Pound Ridge, New York. The same thing, eight-time qualifier. Kudos to those boys for uh, doing their thing and, and keeping their game sharp. Oh, just unreal to have have eight times. I mean, I wonder what they what they're when they when they play in their in-state um, pro events. I mean, they must dominate. Oh, I could just just imagine. But either way, you know what? Whether they're in the shop or or they're out playing golf, who cares? To qualify for the PGA eight times is absolutely incredible. Incredible, Dutch. I want to hear it. I'm excited. I've allowed us four picks this week. I've we've jumped it up. We're allowed four picks. Give them to me, Dutch. Well, before I give you to them, I just have to say again, once again, we 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 nailed our long shot last week in in having uh, T three, and we just missed out on speed. So um, it was a shootout. Uh, you got to see Sammy Burns in there. We had talked about him a couple weeks ago. That guy's on a roll, and he thinks he can win every time. So it's nice. And I listeners reached out to us and said thank you because they had another uh, massive payday with. Uh, Kazari, who uh, we had him at 135 to one, and uh, he almost pulled it off with a nice nine under on the last round. So, so I had to throw that in there before because you've had some some serious success the last couple of weeks. So, listen, my picks this week, the proof is in the pudding, my friend. We don't have to get into you know all stats and all this BS. You're gonna have your numbers. You've you've done your prep, and people by now know that we're just not pulling names out of our ass here to make picks. We we do our research, but I'm gonna keep it simple. My lock of the week. Yeah, he's the favorite. You got to keep him in there. He's one of my four guys at 11 to 1, Rory McIlroy. Simple, easy. My other lock of the week, massive bomber. He's been floating around. He's due to, to get on a little bit of a roll again. He's at 16 to 1, and that's none other than Bryson DeChambeau. Those are my two Americans in the field. You want value? I got value. We like I said, we nailed our long shots the last couple of weeks. 66 to 1 this guy is. He's he's made 17 plus He's playing solid golf, including a couple top 20s, one top 10 in his last three starts. And he also had a couple back-to-back seconds earlier in the season. And that's the man from Chile, Joachim Neiman. Oh, and as for, there you go. Absolutely, absolutely. And, my, and for my long shot, I can't believe he's this high, but I get it. It's golf and it is there. But we, we dug deep again, 142 to 1. Oh, I love it. Nine top 25s this season three top 10s and a second place finish just recently at Harbortown. he's in fine form and that's emilio grillo oh look at that nice little pick 142 to one how do you go wrong there take him at take him at your each way just like i did this week with with kazari and if he doesn't win and finishes in the top five you're getting a nice nice payday you're getting you know 300 bucks back on a uh, on a ten dollar bet so i mean it's 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 just brilliant no, nothing wrong with those picks i like them so dutch i'll start with uh with a long shot and i i talked about that stat about the english and you know what i'm a glutton for punishment you know that hey he's playing good golf he's up there in that um that uh, strokes t to green stat that we talked about last week t6 that wells fargo i'm gonna keep it simple too tied for third here in 2019 in the pga uh, tied 19th in 2018, 125 to one. He's eighth. And like I said, in that Tita green stat, I'm, I'll take that at 125 to one. I'm going the Englishman, Matt Wallace. Love it. Then I'm taking a, uh, this is, this is a, this pick's called take a flyer pick. Good value here. 90 to one. He was T five at Wells Fargo. He's had some success at the PGA before 
um, including a sixth in 2018 and an eighth in 2019 and at um, a top 40 again in 2020. So he's been steady Eddie and he's found his distance again after dropping a bunch of weight, um, kind of lost a lot of distance there and you're going to need it this week. He's up well over 300 yards again off the tee. He's got his game back, had the last week off, and that is Gary Woodland. Gary hey, Woodland as a, as, a, as a take a flyer pick at 90 to 1. Nothing wrong that pick. He actually was on my radar. He was one of five that I uh, that I was looking at. So good one. I like it. And you know what? He he just, and why not? My, my rock steady pick of the week, 40 to 1. Hey, he won the Masters for me. And you want to talk about track record at an event. He's disappeared. He went back into isolation. Has reappeared last week with a little uh, tied for 30th or 36th at the Byron Nelson. A few solid rounds in there. Once again, somehow coming in under the radar. And you want to talk about format and event. T19, T35, T27, T4, T5, T25, T16, T22. Those are Hideki Matsuyama's finishes at the PGA Championship since 2013. This guy's going to be here, whether there's wind, no wind, or whatever. He's just a rock-steady golfer, and at 40-1, to he won the Masters for me. I'm dipping back in. I'm taking Hideki Matsuyama again. Listen, I like that pick, and, you know, it's hard to win back-to-back majors. We all know that, but for a guy like him, maybe maybe there's just less pressure as far as the press conferences because he'll still have to do his due diligence as the, the the current major champion, even though it was the Masters. But I do I like it. I like it. I think he'll be in there solid. I don't know if he can win um, just because of the the pressure of winning back to back. But who knows, my friend? Who knows? Good pick. And you took him. You took him off the board already. I liked him. I'm going with my big gun of the week. I'm going Bryson. You talked about 7,800 yards. We talked about distance, 310, 320, 340. It's going to be an advantage here, and more advantage if the wind doesn't pick up. My big guns, Bryson DeChambeau. Solid, buddy. Solid. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I appreciate you having me on once again uh, to go over our picks. And as I said, uh, um, a, a great job with the interview. And uh, hopefully you can keep landing some 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 big studs on the, on the golf side as well. I'm happy to partake anytime when you, uh, when you want, whenever these golf picks are coming on the round button. Look forward to chatting next time as well. Perfect. So all the listeners out there, hope you enjoyed our PGA Championship preview. There's 229 live hours of coverage like you heard from Bob on ESPN. And obviously TSN is going to pick up a bunch of that. So make sure you're following along all week. When we get back from break, we're going to have Kevin Bowen on from the Indianapolis Colts and doing an AFC NFC South review. We're going to go right into that interview and we'll catch you on the flip side. And thank you, Dutch. Carson Wentz is an Indianapolis Colt. Boy, that's really remarkable. The offensive line falls, people. The defense flies around. The only missing piece for the 2021 Colts team looked to be a quarterback. This is a absolute home run for the Colts. I love what the Colts are doing. Wentz and Frank Reich will be great together. Love it, Carson. Yeah. Hey, again, again. Your toughness and your competitiveness. That's what it's all about. All right, listeners, welcome back from break. Let's give a Triple G welcome to content and executive producer for 107 The Fan in Indy, covering all things Indianapolis, including those Colts. Writer, radio, TV personality around Indianapolis, been covering the Colts since 2012, Mr. 
Kevin Bowen. Kevin, you on the line here with us? Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No problem at all. Um, we'll hop right into it and hope your day's going good. Um, Kevin, you know, let's start where, where everybody wants to start before we, we get into the draft a little bit here. But, um, you know, we see the the acquisition of, of Carson Wentz and reuniting with Frank Reich. What kind of offense are we going to see from the Indianapolis Colts this year? Is it going to be that, you know, RPO that we saw in Philly, or is it going to be the traditional drop back that we saw with Phillip Rivers last year or a combination of both? Yeah, I would say two big elements to me, I think, stand out. I think you will see a lot more of the RPO stuff we saw in Philadelphia. Um, you had a little bit of it last year. Obviously, you didn't have much of a run threat in Philip Rivers, or I should say no run threat, to be honest. But um, you're definitely going to see that. It's Carson Wentz's game. I think at you know 6'5 and 230, he can still uh, give you some of that with his legs as well. And then I think you're going to see just a little bit more of a vertical passing game. Maybe not as quick rhythm stuff that Philip Rivers gave you. I think part of that is Rivers knowing his game and knowing kind of his inability to make plays off script or with his legs, whereas Carson can probably do a little bit more of that. Uh, but I think as a seam thrower and, again, just as a vertical outside the number guy, I do think this offense will have a little bit more to that in the passing game. Um, so I, I think those are two big elements that we'll see a difference in. Yeah, that makes makes total sense. Let's let's dive into the draft now here, Kevin, and and, and in twenty twenty one, were you surprised to see um, Quiddy Pay at, at twenty one and and not the the a quick twitch wide receiver um, like an Elijah Moore or a Rondell Moore out of uh, out of Purdue, somebody like that to add a little bit more speed to the offense as we know. T.Y. Hilton gets that little bit older. Were you surprised not to see the wide receiver there and, and they went to try to replenish that D-line? Or, you know, uh, the feeling around Indy was is that they were going to stick with that D-line spot? Uh, you know, I wasn't overly surprised they didn't go wide at him. They did draft Michael Pittman early last year. Um, yep. Obviously, he's not that speed element necessarily, I'd, although I do think he runs really well for a big guy. Uh, but he's not, you know, whatever, T.Y. Hilton and passing the torch there or even, you know, Paris Campbell insurance policy. But they had a massive need entering the draft of defensive end, and they had a massive need at left tackle. Um, they decided to double dip at defensive line, Dio Dangbo in the second round. Out of Vanderbilt, was just too good to pass up for Chris Ballard. Chris Ballard absolutely loves him, loves his length, uh, his versatility as well, thinks he can be a really special player. Once that Achilles injury is fully healed, and then Quiddy Pay in round one, I think they hope is finally the answer at that edge rush, which they've missed on several times now uh, here in the Chris Ballard era. Uh, but as far as wide out, yeah, you know, I, I thought they could have addressed something in free agency, maybe with another receiver there. Uh, they elected not to. Um, obviously just signed Eric Fisher uh, last week as well. So I think they, they view it as if healthy, which, you know, is a big if with Paris Campbell's injury history. They like a quartet of Michael Pittman and T.Y. Hilton and Paris Campbell and Zach Pascal. They've got some other young guys that, that they like as well. But, you know, you obviously, when you only have two picks in the first 125, you can't check every box. But I thought defensive end and left tackle were the two biggest needs entering the draft. And in different ways, here in the short term, uh, at, at left tackle, they were able to address that. Yeah, it makes sense. And and by with, with that quartet, like you said, of, of wide receivers, they definitely won't be short in size and stature, that's for sure. Um, were you – is Quiddy Pay going to be a day one starter? Is he going to walk in here and 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 be on that defensive line and, and be expected to be a contributor? I think he will be. Yeah, I think he's a um, I think he's a seventeen I guess seventeen game. I almost said sixteen game. 
Um, I think he's a 17-game starter for you, um, which is rare. I mean, to be honest with you, for a rookie defensive end, that's not something you typically see. But I think what stands out about Cordy Pay is outside of his character and, you know, a lot of those items that, you know, people have, you know, already know a whole lot about. I think he gives you a very high floor as a player from day one. And by that, I mean at 268, he's a guy that can come in here and can offer you first and second down, you know, presence right away. And that's critical. Yeah. Set, um, it, set that edge. He's he's pro ready size. He's 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 ready to go, right? Yeah, he can, he can handle the point of attack and and certainly hold his own there. So now it's you know develop the counter move, get him more in that natural kind of edge rush role. He moved inside at Michigan a decent amount as well. Uh, but yeah, I think you know at the minimum, again, a very solid run defender that gives you you know six or seven sacks a year. I think that's that's the hope. Um, and then the goal is, can you turn six or seven sacks into nine or 10 or something like that and try to do that and get that on an annual basis? So I think that's how, um, you have to view Cody pay. Yeah. And you know what, he's, he's got a nice little duel of, you know, Grover Stewart and DeForest Buckner to, to work with and, and learn from. So he's, he's walking into a, a good spot, a good room with some veterans that can help him help him along the way. Um, Looking at the rest of the draft, let our listeners know, um, Kevin. You know, is there is there a late round? Is there a steal here in the later rounds, or what did you like in the later rounds that you saw? And and a question I had specifically was the quarterback in round six, uh, Sam Sam Ellinger out of Texas. What what was the thought there? Yeah, well, let's start there with Ellinger. You know, he's a guy that they absolutely love, love, love. I can't stress that enough. His character and just kind of his mental makeup, and unfortunately, tragically. You know, his brother passed away, I think, in the day or two following the NFL draft. There may actually probably more like a week following the NFL draft. And, um, you know, he already lost his father, I think, back in high school or eighth grade. So, I mean, talk about a guy that's had to grow up um, just so much for his family. And I think from a football standpoint, how he handles the quarterback position, how he handled his four years at Texas – really something that resonated with the Colts and that's a big, big deal to should be to every NFL team, but the Colts really stress that, mm-hmm. um, you know, another guy. And I guess for Ellinger, you know, I, I think in a ideal world for the Colts, he kind of be their QB three, you know, Jacob Eason, they drafted in the fourth round last year, still should have the lead track to be the backup. Um, but Ellinger is a guy that, you know, maybe if he shows you something or you want to incorporate, you know, a little bit of a kind of run package, he could provide that. Um, other kind of late day three pick that I thought was intriguing was Mike Strawn, a receiver out of Charleston, Division yeah. two school, 6'5", 225, runs 4'5". I mean, that's you can't teach that. Put up some just filthy numbers at that level, which you would expect. But still, uh, now it's, all right, get him into an offense, get him into a full route tree, handle some D1, I should say really some professional corners that you got to face as well. But nice developmental project at a position, again, where size and speed is is hard to come by. So I'd say that's probably the day three pick. Later on day three, that stands out the most to me. Yeah, and, and what were your thoughts on on the round four and five pick at 127 and 165 with, with Sean Davis, the safety out of Florida, and the tight end, um, I believe, at a Southern Methodist, uh, Kellen Granson. Do you think he's got an opportunity to, to get in there behind Doyle and, and learn and, and contribute? Um, at that tight end spot and in terms of Davis um, I know there was a, a light light need in the secondary more kind of at, a, at the corner spot um, but he's got an opportunity to, to contribute or at least make the roster uh, as well 
Yeah, I think the thing stands about Davis is you look at his numbers at Florida. It's a guy that started for two years in the SEC and really put up some impressive like pass broken up and tackle for loss numbers. Uh, you don't typically see both of those, you know, for a safety, but clearly uh, he made some plays at you know every level really of the defense. And again, only a two-year starter, which is still impressive considering you're in the best conference in football. But it's not like he was a four-year starter and could put up all those numbers over the course of an entire college career. And then Kylan Grant's in the fourth round tight end, like you said, out of SMU, former wideout, um, very smart individual, um, could have got into an Ivy League school, went to Rice, then transferred to SMU. I thought the skill set at tight end was necessary for the Colts to find more of that hybrid to complement Jack Doyle and Mo Ali Cox, get more of that speed, post-catch, good separator in traffic. You know, he's not a big, big tight end, but, you know, if defense is playing base, you see a guy that can make some plays and separate. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that's really important as well. So, um, Sean Davis probably just a third safety, maybe growing to some sub-packages, but Kylan Granson's a guy that, Knowing Frank Reich's for using tight ends, he should play a good amount. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit, maybe not the same size, but, uh, you know, the Dallas Goddard type that, you know, you've got a tight end there already, like the Eagles did. You draft one just as another opportunity for Wentz to find, uh, you know, that mismatch, uh, you know, pre-snap. Definitely, yeah. I mean, when you look at the Colts and their history, uh, I guess recently, you know, they had Trey Burton last year. I yep. look at, you know, Granson as kind of a, a little bit of a higher ceiling, but kind of the similar mold as an undersized guy like Burton who could line up in a lot of places. For sure. So as, as you look at the roster as it's currently constructed, Kevin, and, and you look at where this team made it last year and, and going toe-for-toe toe with, with Buffalo and, and probably actually should have been won that game. And, and you know, how is this team going to push over the top? We see the Danico Autry leaving and Philip Rivers retires and – and then we see this draft class come in with with Quiddy Pay and some of the guys we've talked about. Um, what's going to push this team over the top, and what else is needed maybe to help push the team over the top or to fill in some of those small little niches on the roster? Well, certainly, so much comes down to success of the quarterback Carson Wentz. Uh, I I know that is probably kind of an easy cop out, but. Obviously, last year was not good at all. And so, you know, how much can the Colts get him back to, you know, an acceptable, above average, whatever you want to call it, level, I think will be vital. You know, when you look at the rest of the roster, there's not a lot of holes. Um, Sure, there are some questions, you know, health-related at left tackle and depth at corner and health at receiver and things like that. But it is a group that, you know, when you look at the AFC South and Tennessee's really the only other threat, uh, definitely looks like a team that could win the division, but something they haven't done since 2014. And That's I think right. to do anything in the AFC, uh, which I think is a pretty competitive AFC with about five or six teams at the top, I think it's critical to at least have one home game in that mix. And even if you would have beat Buffalo last year, you know, it still would have been a trip to Arrowhead next and you would have been on the road for the entire playoffs. So I think that is a critical step for them as a franchise, as an organization. Very difficult start to the year when you look at the schedule. Uh, home to the Seahawks, home to the Rams, and then at Tennessee, at Miami, at Baltimore. Uh, so very, very difficult stretch right out of the gate. But I think on paper, this is a team that the amount of starters they brought back, if Eric Fisher can be healthy for you, uh, the baseline should be, I think, to win the division and uh, win a playoff game. I like it. I like it. 
So I know, Kevin, we, we talked about off-air, you know, we're doing our little, we just finished up our, our PGA Championship preview here on, on Triple G and uh, came straight back from break to, to this interview. And I know you had a little uh, a pick you wanted to throw into the hat there for the PGA Championship. So before we let you go here, um, who's your who's your little PGA Championship pick? Yeah, I, I'm a diehard golfer. I don't know if I have a resume to talk about it, but I appreciate you letting me throw one on here. I will go with uh, Justin Thomas. I think uh, he kind of fits this course, and I know Rory obviously ran away with it. You know, what was it now? Almost a decade ago there yeah, at Kiowa. 2012, that's right, yep. Yeah, but I think Justin Thomas has a similar skill set and had some moments this year, had some ups and downs certainly, but we'll go with JT to uh, take home as, what, a second PGA I think it'd be? Yes, it would be. I love it, love it. Well, I appreciate you doing that. Kevin, let our let our listeners know. We'll let you go here now. Let our listeners know where uh, where can we find you on the social side? Where can we find you uh, um, doing your TV, radio, uh, writing thing? Let us uh, Let us know where we can catch up with you. Yeah, it's a K Bowen. That's B O W E N ten seventy over on Twitter. So you can check me out there, Instagram as well, and then our website one zero seven five thefan.com. So a lot of Colts content, a little bit of Pacers as well up on the site. Uh, beautiful. Well, uh, let's keep in touch. We'll uh, we'll circle back as we get closer to the season, and probably have you on again if you if you'd like to join us and. Uh, Hopefully the Colts can add another piece or two along the way here. And, and as we get closer to the season, we'll catch up. You bet. Thanks for having me. And uh, everybody enjoy the PGA. Well, what amazing breakdown there by Kevin talking uh, Indianapolis Colts and a big season for Frank Wright, Wright in that squad. So it'll be interesting to see. And I know we talked about a bunch of the prospects there, but to uh, to give a quick breakdown, um. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give the Indianapolis Colts a, a, a par. I, I thought they could have um, went out and found themselves a, another playmaker to to push them over the top. I get uh, the back to back defensive line picks there, trying to replenish. You know, Danico Autry being uh, leaving for Tennessee within the the division, and, and you know, an aging DeForest Buckner and, and defensive line. So. You know what? Uh, I I understand it, but I just don't see the playmakers. I just don't see how, like I said, talked with with Kevin about it, as how um, this Colt squad is going to push over the top here in terms of uh, playoff contention. Do I think they they're they're in contention for this South Division? One hundred percent. Jacksonville hasn't made enough uh, enough strides yet. Houston's an absolute dumpster fire, um, and Tennessee's probably taken a step back. Um, hasn't definitely hasn't gotten any better. So um, for sure they're in contention there, but I just don't see how this Colt squad's going to push over the top against the likes of Kansas City, uh, Baltimore, Cleveland, Buffalo, some of these uh, these squads that are going to contend for this AFC championship this year. Moving on, and let's start to, to drive down uh, in into the, the draft of the other three teams, and that's the Texans, Titans, and the Jaguars. And, and let's start with... Uh, a team that we can pretty much get out of the way pretty quickly here. Um, and that's uh, David Cully, Lovey Smith, Pep Hamilton, and the Houston Texans. Uh, we know what they have in the quarterback controversy. Tr- controversy, Not in the traditional uh, term, but just in the fact of um, if Deshaun Watson's even going to play football here in 2021. Um, I just don't see how he wouldn't be suspended. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. 
And and that's where the Houston Texans started. I guess they want, you know what, you, you, you had Tyrod Taylor in, in the facility, but um, why not try to land maybe on your, on your future? And, uh, and you go out and you, you take that third round pick. They did not have a first and second round pick partially because of the, uh, the Laramie Tunsil trade and, and looking at uh, your team needs in terms of what you're looking for. And, you know, you, you, your needs are everything on defense because it was an absolute shit show last year. You're still looking for a number one wide receiver. If Watson's going to be out of Houston or traded, you're still you're looking for a new franchise quarterback. So, you know, you had needs left, right, and center. You only had um, five picks in the entire draft. So tough to really make a big indent here and a tough situation for David Culley. And... Um, and um, the new GM coming over from uh, from the New England Patriots, his name escapes me right now. But you go ahead and you draft the kid uh, Mills out of Stanford with the 67th overall pick. You know what? He's a playmaker. Um, can he be a franchise quarterback? Well, we will see. You know, there's some question marks around, um, you know, some of the arm talent and, and what's available there. But, um you know, it, it, it's it, time. Time will tell. Time will tell what what's going to happen. What I do like is that they've surrounded them with two solid offensive minds, solid good quarterbacks. Coach, they're entrenched, and their skill set is rooted in in teaching quarterbacks from fundamentals, from systems to how to play in the NFL. And that is David Culley and Pep Hamilton. So the kid's not going to have two better to learn from in terms of uh, tutelage and coaching. Um, but does he have the the athleticism, the talent to be able to, to compete in the NFL? That will be uh, that will be the question. Then uh, you you, t- you spend your second third round pick on six foot four, two hundred fifteen pound kid out of Michigan, Nico Collins. Um, you know what? He's long. He can go up and make catches on contested balls. So he's got some of the skill set that you're looking for in that X receiver, that number one wide receiver. But uh and and you had to you had to go ahead and, and add talent at receiver. You know, that was a big need for them. Um he's definitely going to compete. when Andre Roberts and Kiki Kute are listed as your number two wide receiver on your depth chart, um I know it's May, but you gotta go find some help. You gotta go find some help, and and they did. They did find some help there, and Nico Collins is gonna have every opportunity here to compete for that number two job, um, to compete for that number three job. I think he's gonna be able to make a, to be able to make an impact. And you know what? If 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 Deshaun Watson is able to stay on the football field, uh, look out. He he then in turn's got an opportunity to make that jump. To maybe not be the number one wide receiver on paper, but to be able to produce at a number one uh, wide receiver level. So uh, a nice pickup. I, I don't mind that pick with the 89th overall pick in the draft. Uh, then they they spend one of their two uh, fifth round picks, Brevin Jordan, um, tight end out of Miami, six foot three, two hundred and fifty pounds, kind of that split tight end uh, type of mismatch. Don't mind the pick. He's he's got athleticism. He he's not your your traditional inline blocker tight end type, but um, they're in need of playmakers. 
did they have some other needs there? Uh, 100% that they, they could have addressed, but it is the fifth round. Um, and then you, then you get safety, um, hybrid linebacker, Garrett Wallow, six foot two, 220 pounds. So kind of undersized for the linebacker position, even at the will spot. Um, and a, a bigger type of safety. So kind of that, that hybrid look, um, that's going to be very effective or be on the field for your sub packages. And we, and we know now folks, uh, and listeners that, that the NFL is all about sub packages, you know, nickel defense is now base defense for a lot of teams in the NFL nowadays. So, um, a, a nice pickup. I, I think a, a, a player that can fit uh, what Lovey Smith's going to want to do. And then in the sixth round, they go ahead and get uh, Ray Lopez out of Arizona. Um, two technique uh, defensive tackle, six foot one, 300 pounds. But an interesting spot for Lovey because when you look at that roster, um, it's still entrenched with uh, a base 34 defense and, and a lot of three down. Um, or three technique defensive linemen and outside linebacker edge type of rushers. And that's not what Lovey Smith has known and is known for. He's known for that uh, 4-3 base defense, cover two type system. Uh, we've seen it in Tampa. We've seen it in Chicago. We've seen it all over the place where the front four is able to get home and the corners sit in a lot of zone, a lot off coverage um, with their eyes in the backfield trying to read and and really play instinctively so um is is that the start there with with lopez or or really just not enough enough of an opportunity with five picks for lovey to make a, a big splash nor with david cully as well so um just not enough there for houston some some couple questionable picks at the time in which they picked them so not a big fan of this draft either um in terms of uh, the houston texans and so that's all for two in that afc south and but now two teams, I think that that really made strides and and have an opportunity to uh, to really see some dynamic playmakers come through for them from the, the 2021 draft and really get some of these rookies on the field immediately. We'll start first with with the Tennessee Titans, and and we know some of the big names that that have left the Titans, and they have lost some some talent, you know, from John New Smith at the tight end spot and moving to New England. Um, to Corey Davis at the wide receiver position and moving to the New York Jets and Isaiah Wilson and, and that debacle going down to Miami and lasting three days and at offensive tackle. So they had some holes to fill in the draft and and really a team that took a step back, you know, after going to the uh, the AFC Championship game in 2019. Um takes a step back after the first round playoff loss in 2020 and and where does that leave them in terms of what they're going to try to add what they want to do um and what they are looking for and i think what you saw with the tennessee titans is you know what they they draft a need right off the hop um in that first round with the 22nd overall pick some question marks there uh, and Caleb Farley, but you know what? An absolute dynamic playmaker um, when healthy. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how Mike Vrabel and this defense want to use Caleb Farley. But uh, can't, can't, can't miss. You know, they, uh, there was talk of the Saints moving up uh, from 28 to go get him. 
uh, talks of some Baltimore possibly going up to get him, uh, Buffalo going up to get him to have him as their their cornerback too for the next four or five years. So a, a name that was definitely floated around, and I think if some of those those health questions uh, weren't so prevalent in all of all of his pre-draft um, information, I think you would have seen him probably go in the mid-teens, or you would have seen another team fly up the board to, to come and get Caleb Farley. But I, I like the pick there for Tennessee. Uh, addresses a need right off the hop. He's going to be able to come in and play right away. Then we move to round two with the 53rd overall, 53rd overall pick, and they go get the, uh, the big tackle guard prospect out of North Dakota State, protecting Trey Lance over the last couple of years, six foot four, three hundred and one pounds, in uh, Dylan Raddunz. I like it. Um, you know what? You have Wilson leave. You've got Taylor Luan out there on that left side with some serious um, health question marks over the last couple seasons. Uh, it was a need spot, and and you you addressed it. Did you did you address it with with a plug and play type of player? I'm not sure there. Um, I'm not sure the athleticism's there to be able to handle some of the best rushers in the game at left tackle. Um, but I, but I, what I do know is, is that they need offensive linemen because Derrick Henry is going to run the football there, and that's going to be ultra important for them uh, to have some off- offensive line depth. Then I love this pick, Monty Rice, with the 92nd overall pick, linebacker out of Georgia finalist for the Dick Buckkiss Award. Um, I think he's right into the rotation. I think he's going to compete uh, for that Sam linebacker spot with uh, with Harold Landry there. And I think he's got a good opportunity in Mike Vrabel's system to really come in and compete for a starter job and be productive out on that football field for the Tennessee Titans. I think uh, this was a great pick. I think Mike Vrabel um, sees a traditional type of linebacker that he can use and I think he sees a role for this a role for this kid so another good pick there by Tennessee uh, and then with the trade um, they trade back they, they pick up the third round pick with the hundredth overall pick Elijah Molden cornerback out of Washington and your comp is Tyron Matthew gotta love it um, another good pick there so they, they really address that cornerback spot with Molden and Farley and you know M- Molden is, is he's big for a corner like he, you could see him corner safety type of role um, really instinctive player really likes to be down inside the box um, and using his instincts to be able to uh, to affect games and then with the one uh, 109th overall pick they, they get Des Fitzpatrick uh, big wide receiver, six foot two, two hundred and ten pounds. I don't mind that pick. And then they get Rashad Weaver out of Pitt, uh, defensive um, defensive end, six foot four, two hundred and sixty pounds. Uh, kind of your prototypical three four outside linebacker, but we could see him, um, you know, down in the dirt a little bit. So I really, really like what um, what Tennessee did here. They also go out and get Racy McCath from. Uh, Wide receiver out of LSU, uh, another big receiver, 6'2", 210 as well. So they're looking for that big wideout number two to pair opposite of A.J. Brown because they need some weapons. They need weapons uh, on that other side to really take off um, A.J. Brown. So you know what? 
uh, in terms of addressing wide receiver, getting a, a tackle in there, um, getting some playmakers in there after after Davis and Smith walk out the door. Um, you get Bud Dupree and Danico Autry uh, to, to help the pass rush side. You know, you get Monty Rice to help out um, at the second level at the linebacker spot and with Farley and Molden um, in the in the secondary. Overall, from, from free agency and specifically the draft, um, I'm giving Tennessee the thumbs up. Pretty solid job there by Mike Vrabel and that um, new regime there in Tennessee. As we end out and round out the AFC South, we go to a team that really, to me, had an opportunity to make a huge indent and really start the blueprint for the rebuild of their franchise after it had fallen apart uh, over the last few seasons here. You know, you, you, you make the trip in, uh, in 2018, 17, 18, I believe, to the AFC Championship game and, and are literally nine minutes away from, from a Super Bowl appearance um, against the New England Patriots. And and the last few seasons have fallen apart on the Jacksonville Jaguars and and um, and Doug Marone obviously in turn loses his job because of it, and in walks the door is Urban Meyer and the big sexy head coach that Shaka Khan's been looking for, and they have a nice draft last year with some nice um, undrafted weapons, undrafted uh, free agents and James Robinson in the backfield. And C.J. Henderson, um, you know, Lavinska Chanel. So they make a they they really build a nice draft last year, um, and with all of the picks they have, I believe it was eleven on the board. They have an opportunity now to add to that draft and continue the blueprint. And and you know we don't, we're going to know that Urban Meyer is going to want to start his own um, program and his own regime and. If there's no other lock in this draft, or there was no other lock, more none other than Trevor Lawrence with the first overall pick. And then they back it up with his running mate, Travis Etienne, running back out of Clemson with the 25th overall pick. Why not? Um, they need dynamic playmakers on offense. You've got Robinson in there. And Etienne's, you know, you've already heard some of the revelings out of, out of Jacksonville in terms of how they want to, use him and position him. Um, he's going to be a scat back. He's going to, you may see a lot of two back sets, you know, with Robinson in the backfield and ETN, um, you know, split uh, outside in the slot um, out at a, at a wide out spot. He is multi-purpose, multi-use. He's an absolute home run hitter. So um, really two nice pickups and two nice pickups to really set, set the bar and set the stone. Um, for the offensive side of the football. Then you go to round two. You got two picks in round two. Uh, you got a pick in round three and then three picks in the fourth. But let, let's look at uh, at round two. Tyson Campbell, cornerback out of Georgia. Um, he's going to battle Trey Herndon here for, for, the, uh, for the number two corner spot opposite of C.J. Henderson. And now all of a sudden you've got bookend corners, both playing on rookie contracts, um, you get Campbell on, on in a, in the second round. You know, you you would have to think if you if you like Campbell at thirty three. You know, that first overall pick in the second round is always a tough one. Um, it seems people either want to trade out of it or trade up back into the first round to get the fifth year option on that first round pick. 
So it'd be interesting to see in that war room whether Urban Meyer was trying to get back up into the first round um, again and make it three first-round picks there. You know, moving up uh, with Buffalo at 31, let's say, um, or sorry, Baltimore at 31, or Buffalo or Green Bay at uh, 30 or 29, somewhere in that spot to see if he could uh, to go get Campbell um, and get another option there. Um, a fifth year option on him potentially, but a, a nice pickup. Then you get the big tackle, six foot seven, three hundred thirteen pounds, Walker Little out of Stanford. Um, this other than Andrew Norvell, this, this and, and you know Cam Robinson on that left side. That left side of this Jaguars offensive line is is solid. You know, uh, one of the best guards in in the NFL in Norvell, and and a solid um, tackle out of Auburn and Cam Robinson, who's going to be playing on the franchise tag this year, looking for that long term contract, but. Um, has a real potential to be one of the best left sides of that offensive line. So, you know, you needed your other, your other tackle, um, little bits of some question marks on from the center over on the right side of that offensive line. And, and, you know, this kid is, is, uh, he's an athlete. He's, he's got the traditional build. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they can be able to plug and play him there. But to me, out of those first four picks in the first two rounds, you know, if you hit on hit on Campbell or, or Little, you, you picked yourself up three three immediate starters in the NFL right there. And this is exactly what we were talking about in our pre-draft show with Jacksonville. Really having the opportunity to go go set set your franchise and go get you know a good young core that you're going to be able to build around um, here for the next five ten years. And then in the third round, they get the kid out of Syracuse, the safety kid with amazing ball skills, Andre Cisco. I like the pick up there. Then the uh, the fourth round, they go to the D line. They they really take a look with the one oh sixth pick. They take uh, Jay Fluey, uh, defensive tackle, uh, out of USC, and Jordan Smith off the edge out of Alabama Birmingham. Um, pro ready, plug and play, no, um, but definitely have the ability to uh, make some effect on the pass rusher definitely have a skill set that can be used in specific pass rush downs and definitely have the talent to progress and really look at um you know a potential starter spot down the road for both of those picks in the fourth round and and it's a need you needed to get um some more pressure on the quarterback uh in terms of you know really starting to Pester and get after some of these the Ryan Tannehills and the Deshaun Watsons and I know you know Carson Wentz and Philip Rivers from from the Colts so that's what Jacksonville was looking at in that fourth round and and we talked about it that's the that was the meat and potatoes of this draft was was the big men and they knew that they were able to um, or felt they were able to to me dive deep um, in rounds threes and four three and four to find some productive defensive linemen um, later on in this draft and, you know, looked at getting tackle and, and the higher-end offensive talent earlier on in the draft because they knew it wasn't as deep. And then I love this pick, uh, Luke Farrell, six foot five, 251 pounds, tight end out of Ohio State. We talked about it in the pre-draft show. Get Lawrence a tight end that can be reliable and go-to. Is this kid going to be Travis Kelsey or George Kittle? No. 
He's not. Can this kid be Heath Miller? 100%. He can. Will he tra- Will he challenge Chris Manhurts for the starting tight end job? Yes, he will. So I love this pick in the fifth round. Nice, solid tight end. Um, I would be shocked if Urban Meyer wasn't familiar with him coming from Ohio State. Uh, for a fact, he, there's no doubt he was familiar with him. So... Um, Nice pickup. You're getting somebody you know. You're getting you know the character. So uh, I love this pickup and I love this draft by the Jacksonville Jaguars. So rounding out the AFC South, we're gonna rank it. I'm giving Jacksonville a big thumbs up. I'm giving tight the Tennessee Titans a thumbs up. I'm giving the Houston Texan Texans and the Indianapolis Colts a thumb down in terms of draft and positional need playmakers. You guys know my criteria. We're ranking them: Jacksonville, Tennessee. Indianapolis and Houston in the AFC South in terms of the 2021 draft. Now let's end this show off here with a bang with the NFC South. We're going to go fast and furious here. We're talking NFC South, Carolina Panthers, Atlanta Falcons, New Orleans Saints, and the Tampa Bay defending Super Bowl champions, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So let's take a look at it. Atlanta Falcons uh, coming off of a 4-12 and season. We talked with with Will McFadden in terms of what their some of their draft needs were. You know, everything on the defense. The defense probably cost them four or five football games. Well, it did cost them four or five football games last year. They needed to do address. They need to get better pass rush. They've missed on some of their free agent pass rush acquisitions over the last couple of years. They needed help in the secondary. They needed help um, with the O line in terms of you know a little bit of an aging O line and possibly. Grabbing their their quarterback of the future past Matt Ryan, and you know what? Tough spot for the Falcons. We talked to Will McFadden about it. Um, you know, as we move closer and closer to the draft, we knew or we thought that uh, we had a good idea that there would be, you know, three straight quarterbacks taken off the board right off of the hop, and and that's what happened, and and that left the Falcons either. Taking Kyle Pitts with the fourth pick or trading back with the likes of Detroit, uh, Carolina, one of those teams, if anybody at, at 10 or 11 was interested in moving up. But nobody was willing to pay the price um, to move up to four, four, kind of force in Atlanta to take Pitts. Uh, was it a position of need? No, it was. It's not, you know, you got Julio Jones, you got Russell Gage, you got Calvin Ridley. On the outside, um, did you did you need it need a, a tight end? You, you picked up Hayden Hurst last year, no. But he, the value of this kid and the ceiling of this kid and the potential mismatch of this kid could not be looked uh, past. And you take Pitts with the fourth overall pick. I'm okay with it. Then you move to an absolute playmaker in round two um, with the 40th overall pick out of UCF. Versatile safety. I think it's an immediate starter for Atlanta, and that's Richie Grant. Love the pick up there. Then you move to round three, uh, 68th overall pick, Jalen Mayfield, six foot five, 325 pounds um, out of Michigan. Listen, uh, just over a thousand snaps in, in college football. So not an experienced tackle here. Might be best kicking him inside the guard, but he's got time to learn. This offensive line, this is a good offensive line. Um, 
and and you know it's not going to necessarily be a plug and play spot here for um for Jalen Mayfield he's going to have some time he could be a little bit of a swing tackle they could kick him inside the guard um if they don't like what they see at tackle uh, because of his lack of experience so either way it will be interesting um to see what they do with Jalen Mayfield then they then they have two picks in the fourth three picks in the uh fifth they go Darren Hall cornerback out of San Diego State um this guy's got a shot to me to start opposite AJ Terrell right away. Uh, same with uh, with Richie Grant, um, the versus out safety in, in round two. I think they've they've hit with two starters in the secondary right off the hop here. And then I love this pick out of uh, with the 114th overall pick, Drew Dalman. This kid's got lineage. He's the son of former offensive lineman, San Francisco 49ers All Pro, Chris Dalman. Um, He's got the size, he's got the ability, he's got the tutelage, the lineage, he's got everything you need. He's going to challenge Matt Hennessy for the starting job. He's also got positional flexibility, can kick in, kick out for him, would be outside to guard on either side, left or right. Um, to me, don't be surprised if Drew Dolman's an all-pro player in the NFL here in the next two or three years at center or guard. Um, for the Atlanta Falcons, I think an, a crucial interior offensive line piece for years to come for them. Then they go uh, three picks in the fifth, the meat and potatoes. They get uh, to Quan Graham, six foot three, two hundred ninety-two pounds out of Texas, um, long arms, thirty-five inch arms, um, just an absolute beast. And then they get—I'm uh, not even going to pronounce or try to pronounce the uh, Atacampo Ogdekumbi. Um, out of Notre Dame, another long, rangy uh, defensive lineman there. And then Avery Williams, um, just an absolute burner out of Boise State. Looks to me like he's going to be um, one of their returners, uh, or possibly both kick and punt returners. So um, overall, not a bad draft from the, the Falcons. I'm going to give them a par. I thought they had some some needs that they could have addressed a little bit earlier, but I do like that they did look heavy along the defense, picked up some a couple offensive line pieces. Did you go and get your quarterback of the future? No, but we, we knew with our conversation with Will, Will McFadden, but that, that might not be in play for um, for the Atlanta Falcons. We saw Mac Jones, Justin Fields fall outside of the top 10. So, you know, you start to understand at four, if the Falcons didn't feel comfortable with either one of those quarterbacks, then why not stick with the all-pro Matt Ryan for a couple more seasons here and uh, take your chances on finding your quarterback in the future in the future. Now let's slide over to the Carolina Panthers. You know what, when we, we looked at some of their uh, offensive, or sorry, their draft needs before the draft, we, we looked at the offensive line, we looked at finding a, a, a cornerback, uh, another wide receiver after the exit uh, of, of Samuel up to Washington. Another safety to go opposite of Jeremy Chin and, and a tight end for Sam Darnold to uh, to have, similar to like we talked about with Trevor Lawrence, that steady Eddie tight end that he can use uh, over the middle of the football field. And you know what? After last year's all-defensive draft in 2020, drafting the likes of Derek Brown, Udyr Gross-Matos, Jeremy Chin, Bravion Ray, uh, Troy Pride Jr., the Carolina 
Panthers do it again for me. And it starts right from the first pick in the round one, the eighth overall pick, J.C. Horn. This is a size and strength corner at six hundred six foot one, two hundred and five pounds out of South Carolina. Now you've really started to build that secondary. You pair him up with Jeremy Chin now. Um, now you've got something. Now you've got something there. And then they followed up. I love the pick. Uh, Terrence Marshall, you guys know I've talked about um, him in in uh, other episodes here and over the last couple weeks. They trade back, so they pick up an extra third-round pick. They trade back to 59. Marshall still available. Um, and now you've got DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson steps in, David Moore, and Terrence Marshall. You've got a nice 1-2-3-4 combo at the wide receiver position. You've got some depth there now in case one of those goes down that you can still withstand and you still got weapons and you've still got McCaffrey coming back as well. So you've got, you're starting to build some op- offensive weapons. Um, you go out and get a growing ass man in the third round with the 70, 70th overall pick, 25 years old, coming out of BYU. He's going to definitely challenge for that right tackle spot there is absolutely or that left tackle spot with Greg Little or Cameron Irvine and that's Brady Christensen love this pick Um, you're getting a man you're getting an NFL pro ready player in round three love it Um, and then with the extra pick from the trade down in two you go get Tommy Tremble Um, a little bit of a you know a a mobile tight end that you're going to be able to maneuver around in formations really make things tough for teams to see what you're trying to do really start to find those mismatches it can be an h-back uh can split out at a hybrid type can be a fullback on running downs if you want six foot three 240 pounds he's mobile um hasn't played the position a lot but um can really mold him to what you're looking for so i'm okay a little bit of a reach but i'm okay with the pick then you go get the canadian gotta love this pick chuba hubbard oklahoma state running back canadian kid out of bc in the fourth round Hey, uh, McCaffrey got injured last year. It was the first time we've seen it. Why not go get some depth for him? Chuba Hubbard, I love the pick. And I know it was Matt Rule's wife that wanted that pick as well. Uh, if you've watched the video of Inside the War Room there uh, for the Carolina Panthers. And then they go get Darion Nixon, defensive tackle out of Iowa, six foot three, 313 pounds. Um, you know what? Not, not Ken Anchor. And, and not so strong against the run, but an absolute disruptor. And you know what? What a great pickup if you're going to pair with Derek Brown, the block eater. If Derek Brown can take double teams, triple teams on, and you let Darion Nixon go one-on-one um, on passing downs, look out. This kid. This is a kid that can, can find you five to, five to seven to eight sacks from the interior defensive line position. Um, and a great way to push. We both, hey, uh, we don't, other than the Saints, we don't have mobile quarterbacks here in the South. You got an aging Matt Ryan who likes to sit in the pocket, and you got terrific Tom who we we all know is not mobile as well. So why not go get that guy to push from the middle? Love it. Great pickup. Then you finish out uh, Key Taylor, cornerback out of Washington, and then big Deontay Brown, guard out of Alabama. Love this pickup. You want to pair him with the interior offensive line, Matt Paradis. 
Absolutely love it. It's a road grader inside. So overall, really liked what Carolina did. Um, addressing the offensive line with Christensen and Deontay Brown in rounds three and six. Going out and getting another receiver to add depth in the second round with Terrence Marshall. Addressing that cornerback spot. Um, finding yourself a tight end. They checked off all the boxes for me in terms of finding immediate impact players, finding positional need players. I think Carolina had one of the best drafts again here and is really starting to build towards uh, something special. So well done to Matt Rule and company down there in uh, in Charlotte. Now on to the Saints. Not much to talk about here. Uh, very similar to uh, our counterparts on the AFC South side, the Houston Texans. And, and I've talked about the, the reclamation project that the, the Saints are only six picks in the entire draft. Um, we looked at some of the positional needs from cornerback to wide receiver. We talked with Matt Verderim from, uh, from um, the draft, uh, draft network, and he talked about them potentially trading up in, in the first round. And it didn't happen, and and to me it didn't happen because they just they just didn't have the capital. They're they're in a tough cap space, and and now I look at this draft and I just don't understand it. Peyton Turner with the the first uh, pick uh, of theirs, twenty eighth overall, defensive end out of uh, out of Houston. Um, Tesswell, typical prototypical um, size, strength, weight for everything for the position, but you've you've got that Marcus Davenport, you've got Jordan. I understand you're, you you want to keep that three-headed monster as Trey Henderson walks out the door to uh, to Cincinnati, but you need help at corner. And, you know, you got Marshawn Lattimore at that side. You could have took Greg Newsome. Tyson Campbell was still there that we, that we talked about um, earlier in the podcast. Then in round two, you take, uh, of course, as the Saints always do, they take the, uh, the linebacker out of Ohio State and Pete Warner um, with the 60th overall pick. Um, going to be able to play that will spot, no problem, and pair them well with Demario Davis and, and Zach Bond out of Wisconsin on on prior drafts that they drafted. But I'm okay. I'll, I'll stay firm on that pick, and I'm okay with that pick. And then they go get Paulson um, Adibu out of Stanford, cornerback. Absolute ball hawk to pair with Marshawn Lattimore. But I just don't understand the timing of the picks. I would have went with the corner first to address that need. I don't think you necessarily needed the pass rusher. You needed help on D-line, but I would have went a little bit more interior for the Saints and and did what do what Carolina's trying to do and push that pocket on these two quarterbacks to try to go ahead and, and win your division. In that third round with where that pick was at 76, Malcolm Coote still available. Ronnie Perkins, who New England drafted, is still available out of Oklahoma so I would have went Newsom, would have went up and got Newsom two picks earlier. Who went to the Browns at twenty six? I would have taken him at twenty six. You know how much is it to move up two picks? You would have had to give up maybe your sixth or seventh round in, in this draft to go get that corner and, and really have somebody to start opposite of Marshawn Lattimore. I would have did that. Then I would have took a Kuntz or a Perkins in round three, where you took uh, Paulson. Um, that's what I would have done. They finished it up intriguing in the fourth round with the athlete, the intangible man, as I call him, the most winning quarterback in Notre Dame history, Ian Book, uh, quarterback in the fourth round. So an intriguing pick there as to where he's going to fit in this Jameis Winston, Taysom Hill, Ian Book 
quarterback room rotation, whatever you want to call it. So that's got me intrigued as to what Sean Payton has in mind there. You end up with Landon Young, uh, big tackle uh, out of Kentucky in the sixth round. Uh, okay, a, a depth tackle spot uh, behind Taron Taron uh, Armstead and Ryan Ramscheck. Uh, I'll give you that one. Still not a, a big need for me. There were some other spots there that that could have uh, definitely been used, uh, i.e. tight end with Jarrett Cook uh, walking out the door, and then uh, Kaiwan Baker, wide receiver out of South uh, South Alabama. Six foot one, two hundred and ten pounds. You needed a wide receiver. He's got potential. He's got potential to be a sneaky receiver. This pick, I actually really do like. Um, you're learning from one of the best offensive minds. You're going to be WR two, three, four. He's going to have an opportunity to compete. Um, there's no doubt about that. Behind Traquan Smith, after that, there's really not much on that roster. So an opportunity for uh, for Baker to compete there for sure uh, coming out with the in the seventh round. Overall, uh, with six picks and me questioning some of the picks in in rounds one and three, and, and an interesting quarterback pick in round four, um, I, I got to give a thumbs down to uh, the New Orleans Saints here in uh, the 2021 draft and ending off the episode no better way in style than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the defending Super Bowl champion champions, and you know what. We talk about impact players. We talk about positional draft needs, but real hard to to uh, really make an impact um, in terms of immediate impact for the Bucks. You're the defending Super Bowl champs, and you've got and correct me if I'm wrong. Twenty one or twenty two returning starters. You know, eleven and eleven offensive and defensively. Um, so real tough. But I think they did a really good job. I really do. We we talked about some of the 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 needs for for the Bucks in terms of you know linebacker continuing to get some O line and D line depth, maybe adding some wide receiver depth, and eventually possibly getting a, a quarterback that's going to move on or take over here for Tom possibly um, in the next three four years when when Tom finally does decide to uh, to hang him up and they start with uh, with some edge depth. And a, a guy that was flying up the board late in the process, Joe Tryon, edge rusher out of Washington. And you know what? I'm okay with the pick. It was it, it could have been a reach. Maybe not. Does he have a lot of potential? You're darn right. Um, nothing set in stone like I've said here, but no better spot to go to 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 learn than, than behind JPP and Shaq Barrett in terms of outside rusher. And if there is a guy that's going to be able to um, maneuver him and use him in positional pass rush situations or use their skill set set to their strength is defensive coordinator Todd Bowles. So I like the pick here for the Bucks. I'm giving him a thumbs up on that one. I'm also giving a thumbs up on round two. Going to get the big, big-armed quarterback out of Florida and Kyle Trask. Listen, isn't it funny that your your his comp, NFL comp, was Brad Johnson? Um, things that that were written about Kyle Trask not going to be ele- to elevate the offense or go beyond what is in the offensive scheme. Sounds pretty familiar to a guy who wears number twelve that just won the Super Bowl for the Tampa Bay Bucks. Love the pick, Kyle Trask, um, out of Florida. They needed some quarterback depth. Um, they needed to start to take a look 
over the next two, three, four years, like I said, at some quarterbacks and feel if they can find their guy that's going to be able to take over and take the flag from Tom Brady and run with it. And round three, they get six foot four, three hundred and six pound tackle, uh, Robert Hainsey. Um, I'm okay with it. Listen, you've got the best right tackle in football, and I know he's a rookie last year, and we didn't. Nobody talked about him a lot. In Tristan Morse, the best right tackle in football. You did not hear me wrong, folks. And then you've got a pretty darn good left tackle, probably top ten for sure on that left side. So you got the bookend tackles and Donovan Smith and Tristan Morse. You needed a little bit of a swing depth tackle. Uh, you can k- kick Josh Wells inside to play guard now, where his traditional sp- or his a- original spot was. So you've got offers now. You've got more interior um, offensive line help by kicking Wells inside. You get your swing tackle, Hainsey. Is he a little raw? Would you want to have him in there maybe in the first two, three, four weeks protecting Brady? It might be a little bit tough. You might need to go out and get a veteran pickup. But in terms of you can let him sit and marinate and develop behind these two solid tackles and learn, come week 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, he could be a little bit more pro-ready here and ready to go. Um, and then you go get Jalen Durden, absolute blazer in the fourth round, five foot eight, 174 pounds. L- like this pick. Going to be able to take some of those um, jet sweeps and some of those plays. He's a gadget guy. We know how creative Bruce Arians is. This will give him a guy that he can be creative with and be the Antoine Randall-L um, type of guy as Bruce Arians had in Pittsburgh, um, had it a little bit there in, in uh, Arizona as well. So uh, like the pickup of uh, Jalen Durden there in the fourth round. And then love this pickup, K.J. Britt, fifth round, out of Auburn. He's nasty, runs stuffer, just a Todd Bowles guy, just a traditional Sam linebacker or even inside linebacker. Todd Bowles is going to be able to use them on uh, on first and second down when looking to stop the run. Going to be able to play special teams. I think he's going to take over for Kevin Minter, offer some great linebacker depth. I'll end it off there for the Bucks. I think I'm giving the Bucks a big thumbs up on this draft in terms of what they did. I think they they checked all the boxes of their potential needs. We know they didn't have a lot coming off of a Super Bowl championship and all the returners, but some depth needs. They did a great job addressing. They did some future needs, replenished the position, i.e. Tryon, Trask, really starting to replenish that spot. Um, linebacker even as well, too. So overall, I'm giving the Bucks a thumbs up. Rounding out the NFC South, we're ranking it as this. We're going Carolina Panthers 1. Tampa Bay Bucks two, Atlanta Falcons three, and the New Orleans Saints at the bottom of the division in four. And that is your AFC, NFC South draft breakdown, divisional breakdown, folks. Make sure you're tuning in. Thanks to both of our special guests today, folks, for coming on, especially Bob Herrick from the ESPN talking PGA Championship and PGA Championship preview. Thank you very much as well to Kevin Bowen from the Indianapolis Colts who joined us as well for a great little breakdown on the AFC South and the Indianapolis Colts. Make sure you're following us along Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Triple G. And we have a huge preview show, the U.S. Women's Open from Olympic Club next week as well. Make sure you're tuning in. And thanks for listening to Triple G, Ginger's Gridiron and Golf Podcast.
Thank you.